Foundations of Christian Thanksgiving from John chapter 3. Foundations of Christian Thanksgiving. I confess I was tempted to title the message Thanksgiving during China virus, Thanksgiving under tyranny. (laughs) But let's stick with Foundations of Christian Thanksgiving from John 3. First point, be thankful you're born again. Be thankful you're born again. If indeed you are a Christian, if indeed Christ has purchased you with His blood, if indeed you've made a good profession of faith, confessing Christ as Lord, you are born again. And even as in your first birth, your natural birth, you did not choose to be born. You didn't choose to be born again. A sovereign God and His sovereign grace brought you from death to life at that appointed hour and time. He opened your blind eyes. He unstopped your deaf ears. And He replaced that heart of stone that was opposed to God, that even hated God, with a heart that beat for Christ and for righteousness. A heart in which the perfect, omnipotent seed of the gospel would find root and grow up in repentance and faith. Be thankful you're born again. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Be thankful you're born again. Dear saints, in our first birth, that natural birth, that birth of the flesh, we were all spiritually stillborn. We were born dead in sin and trespass. We were born as children of the devil. That's the reality according to Jesus the Christ. To become a child of God, you must be born again. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That quote of the Lord Jesus was the favorite message of George Whitfield, you must be born again. It is said that a woman asked him, George, why do you say that? She probably said, Mr. Whitfield. 
Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep saying you must be born again? And he said, because ma'am, you must be born again. We are born dead in sin and trespass. We are born slaves to sin. We are born slaves to Satan. And we serve him in Ephesians 2. It goes into great length. I don't have the time to go there with you, but on your own time, Ephesians 2 opens that reality up that we were slaves of the devil, slaves of sin. We were like demon-possessed zombies walking, serving the Lord of this world, the devil himself. Until that statement, that beautiful statement in Ephesians 2, but God. Until God interrupted our death, until God interrupted our sin, until God interrupted the deadness of soul, the deadness of heart, the deadness of mind. We were dead to God. But God made us alive. He regenerated our dead soul. He, like the wind, as Jesus says, blew upon our heart with the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the wind blows in the trees and you see the trees move, you see the leaves rustle and you hear them. When the Spirit of God moved upon us in regeneration, you see the leaves move, you hear them confess Jesus Christ as Lord and turn from sin like a hurricane wind that lays trees flat before it. When the Spirit of God comes upon a man or woman, it lays us low in repentance We cry out, what must I do to be saved? And we turn by the grace of God, by the power of God, from sin to Christ and righteousness. John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a religious man, dead in sin. A ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, you, who is the you? It's Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a religious man, a religious leader. A religious leader that Jesus rebukes in verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? You have the law. You have the word of God. You are a teacher of Israel and do not know these things. You don't know the basics, the foundation of theology. A foundation for Christian thanksgiving. That you must be born again. And if you're saved, you have been born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember our prayer, right? The prayer the Lord Jesus taught us. Thy kingdom come. That's the future. New heavens, new earth, in which righteousness dwells and King Jesus rules forever. Thy kingdom come. Isn't just some prayer we pray. We're praying in the coming kingdom of Christ, the eternal kingdom of Christ. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven forever. Forever. No more tears, no more death, no more sin. Only righteousness will dwell in the new kingdom. And unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see it now from a distance. You can't value it now from a distance. You can't enter it now spiritually 
the repentance and confession of Christ as Lord, nor will you be in it eternally unless you're born again. You must be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He thinks only with the natural mind. And until the Spirit of God moves upon us, until the wind blows, the leaves will not rustle. We will only think with the natural mind. We will only think of religion. We will only think of this natural world. We will only think of that which the Jews asked the Lord Jesus in John 6. What works must we work? Until the Spirit of God moves on us, and then we will understand what Jesus answered. The work of God is that you believe. We were always thinking, what works must we work? Until the Spirit of God regenerates us, then we comprehend the amazing grace of God. The work of God is that we believe unto salvation. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. Now, even the winds of this world that move the trees and rustle the leaves blow according to the sovereign will of God. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. There is not a tornado. There is not a hurricane. There is not even a dust devil. Not even the devil himself is out from beneath our sovereign God and His absolute rule. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. And so most certainly salvation is according to the counsel of His will. Most certainly the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration is according to the counsel of God's will. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. You see the evidences thereof. You see the result, but you do not control it. God is sovereign over it. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Oh, dear saints, we need to know this. We need to be anchored in this reality. And we need to be thankful on this premise. Be thankful that you're born again. Keep your hand there in John 3. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. And let's consider just briefly why we needed to be born again. Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? And the we and they there are Jew and Gentile. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, dead under sin, buried, dry bones. They're all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. How dead are we? We have no righteousness. We have no understanding of God or the things of God. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of God, and they have no fear of God. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Their tongues are deceptive. They practice deceit with them. Their throat is an open tomb. Do you understand? Their throat is an open tomb. It reveals a dead heart within. There is none who does good. No, not one. Even the good things we do are tainted with sin. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They all proceed forth from a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Isaiah 64, 6, Jeremiah 17, 9. They have together become unprofitable. Unprofitable for all things holy. Unprofitable for all things righteous. They have all turned aside. They've gone astray from God and they're not coming back. There is none who seeks after God. None, not one. There are no seekers in and of themselves. There is none who understands. They don't understand God. They don't understand sin. They don't understand righteousness. They don't understand salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. There is none righteous, no, not one. What is that describing? That's describing every man and woman dead in sin and trespass. That is our natural state until the grace of God breaks in. That is a natural state until the Spirit of God regenerates us. There is no repentance and faith before regeneration. There is no repentance and faith before you're born again. You must be born again. And you may say, well, pastor, what do I do that if I'm not? You cry out to God that He would grant that you're born again. You cry out to God that He would regenerate your dead soul. You throw Himself utterly upon His mercy. You come to the end of self. You confess that there's nothing in you that can even seek Him. And hear me, if you're crying out in that manner, that gives me great hope that He is calling you unto Himself. For all those whom He calls, come, and not one will be lost. And so if today Christ is your Lord, if today you are a Christian, be thankful that you're born again because God is the author and finisher of your faith. God regenerated you. He set His love upon you and He sent His Spirit to regenerate you. And His Spirit is dwelling within you, illuminating the Word of God unto you. As 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The very basic message of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, crucified for sinners, buried and resurrected on the third day. That is foolishness to the perishing. If that's not foolishness to you, you have great hope that you're the regenerated. You have great hope that you are the living You have great hope that you are the saved, the redeemed, the purchased, the blood-bought. But the message of the cross is foolishness. That's foolishness. It's nonsense to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Being saved, being saved, that's passive on your part. 
It is a monergistic work of God. Now, I would not press that so far as to put it at odds with Philippians 2, 13 and 14. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works within you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. You are responsible to work out your salvation, to seek God. Yet when you do, you know that it's God who's working within you both to will, even to desire, to will and to do His good pleasure. Thus the soli Deo Gloria, to God be the glory. For even when you do that which He commands you to do, you know that it's because He is working within you that you might have the will to do so and the strength to do so. And so the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, being saved through regeneration and illumination and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, being saved. To us who are being saved is the power of God. It, the gospel, is the power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Literally the power of God from beginning to end, author and finisher of our faith. Without the power of God, without the generating power, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the message of the cross is foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? So the naturally wise, right? Those who have great intellect. That's not the key unto salvation. That's not the key unto true and right theology and doctrine even. There are men with great intellects that are great heretics. Fabulous intellects. They write great books, even volumes of books, whole libraries. And they are great heretics. They've used that vast intellect to abuse and torture the Word of God. Because without the Spirit of God, that's all they can do. They must be regenerated. They must be born again. And if you are born again, it is an amazing gift of God. It is an amazing kindness of God. It's nothing you merited. It's nothing you earned. It's nothing you even sought except that God sought you and called you to Him. Thus you called out to Him who was seeking you and bringing you unto Himself. And so the Lord would destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe, the expert student, the diligent student? It's not due to your diligence even. Now, mind you, you're to study to show yourself approved. But again, just like working out your salvation with fear and trembling, when you study to show yourself approved, you know that it's God working within you to do so. And if you actually come out of your study with the truth, actually approved, that's an evidence of amazing grace, not amazing diligence. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? The disputer, the philosopher, the arguer of great thoughts. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Hold fast to that, saints. The Jews, they want law. They want legality. 
They want a system of works righteousness. And by the way, all of man's religions, all the religions we create are systems of works righteousness. That's what our heart desires. It feeds our pride. Look what I have achieved. Look what I have done. Look at all my spiritual merit badges I have earned. I have my sash here. The only merit that will earn you heaven is the merit of Christ. And it's received as a gift by grace. And even your faith is a gift from God. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. Their heart desires flesh-pleasing, self-esteem-elevating, works-based righteousness through the law. But we preach Christ crucified. And to the Greeks, foolishness. Their heart desires flesh-pleasing, self-esteem-elevating, intellect-elevating, mind-stimulating philosophy. But we preach Christ crucified, stubbornly, willfully going against the flow of religion and the flow of philosophy. We preach Christ crucified. Verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are called, those whom God is regenerating, God is calling. Those whom God is calling, God is regenerating. And to those, Christ and his cross are the power of God and the wisdom of God, both Jews and Greeks. And so, we continue in the design according to the command of Scripture to preach Christ crucified. Dear saints, be thankful that you are born again. We're going to have to increase our pace. Secondly, be thankful for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Be thankful for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. John 3.13, just one verse for this point. John 3.13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Be thankful for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is eternally God. Jesus is is eternally the Son of God, everlasting to everlasting. He had perfect fellowship with the Father for all of eternity. And He will have perfect fellowship with the Father for all eternity. There was only one moment, one moment in eternity, which is hard to wrap your mind around, and and that God is eternal and Christ came into space, time and matter in the flesh and hung upon that cross bearing our sin and bearing the fullness of God's eternal wrath that our sin deserves. And he cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And Christ was forsaken because he became sin on our behalf. He took our sin upon him and he bore the wrath of God. That perfect fellowship was interrupted between the Father and the Son for us so that we would be in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Son in the Spirit forever. Never to be interrupted. Never to be interrupted. Nothing can separate us from the love of God our Father in Christ Jesus His Son. Nothing. Because Christ took the fullness of the wrath that we deserve 
at the cross. That's why he came down. That's why he came into the world. To redeem sinners. That's 1 Timothy 1.15. One of my favorite verses to preach. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all. Universal, global acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's amazing good news. I love to preach it. It's the foundation of everything. Should it not be the foundation of our thanksgiving? Be thankful for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There are some, I would say, in a hyper-puritanical conviction that refuse to celebrate Christmas because of its origin. I understand, and if that's their pure conviction, they have such an angst against Roman Catholicism, that Antichrist system damning a billion souls. I get that, and I respect that. But at this point, I think we can celebrate Christmas in clear conscience, not as Christ Mass, but as the celebration of the incarnation of God, the eternal Son who took upon the additional nature of mankind that He might suffer and die in our place as our substitutionary atonement. I think we rightly celebrate the birth of Christ. I think we rightly fill up the earth with lights. I love it, frankly. He is the light of the world. And I find in this dark season of China virus that people are putting up lights and trees extra early. (laughs) And I'm glad. Light it up. He's the light of the world. I love to say Merry Christmas. I love to. And no one today is thinking, oh, that's Romish. No unbeliever anyway. Maybe someone with an astute knowledge of history And I understand Charles Spurgeon's discomfort with Christmas. I get it. Back closer to the Reformation. I get it. But also, in time, he he gave way. He gave Christmas a little bit of love. So, brothers and sisters, keep Christmas. Don't be an Ebenezer Scrooge. Be thankful for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the enfleshment of God. Be thankful. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. He came down from the Holy of Holies to walk amongst sinners. Consider that. Jesus Christ, holy, 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 walked amongst people like us. Jesus Christ, the Creator. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator came into creation, took upon flesh, the additional nature of humanity, the hypostatic union, so that he could die in our place upon a cross, upon some species of tree that he created, that he might be crucified on it. This is astonishing. This is the amazing love of God. This is amazing grace. Oh, be thankful for the incarnation of Jesus Christ who took upon a body as the final high priest with the final sacrifice of himself, obtained eternal redemption, ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father as the one mediator between God and men until he returns to put his enemies beneath his feet as his footstool in the second incarnation of Christ. Be thankful for that too. Sin is coming to an end. 
the horror of sin you see out there in the world, it's going to come to an end. Don't get depressed. It will come to an end. Let it cause you, let it compel you to be thankful for the first incarnation of Christ, to be thankful that you're born again, that you would have eyes to see the evil and not a heart to join into it, and to be thankful for the second incarnation of Christ that's yet coming. And when He comes in that great white horse with the sword of His mouth to lay His enemies low, He will still bear the marks of your redemption. And He will bear them forever. Forever. The marks of His love for you and the price of His love. Be thankful for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Third, be thankful the Father sent His Son to be crucified for you. John 3, verses 14 through 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Be thankful the Father sent His Son to be crucified for you. Oh, the Lord Jesus was willing to come. The Lord Jesus desired to come. But the Father sent His Son, and the Father poured His wrath upon His holy, perfect Son. The Father was separate. The perfect fellowship of the Father and the Son was broken on our behalf. This is the love of the Father for His children, that He would pay such an adoption price, the horrific death of His own Son. Pour in eternity's wrath upon His eternal Son. Be thankful the Father sent His Son to be crucified for you, personally, omnisciently, with full knowledge of who you are, full knowledge of every sinful thought, every sinful deed, nothing hidden from the eyes of He whose eyes are in every place, He who knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. He set His love upon you, And he set to make you lovable. (laughs) He didn't set his love upon you because you were lovable. (laughs) He set his love upon you for his own glory and to put his own amazing grace on display. And he makes us lovable by imputing to us the very righteousness of his own son. Our sin imputed to Christ at the cross. His righteousness imputed to us. So when the Father looks upon us, He doesn't see our sin because Christ took it and paid it in full, paid the debt in full. And He places His righteousness upon us. Foreign righteousness, alien righteousness. The only righteousness you'll get to heaven with is a righteousness that's outside of yourself. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Imputed to you through faith. Not imparted bit by bit, sacrament by sacrament, good deed by good deed, little impartations of righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness, a declared righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone. You have been saved by grace, through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest man should boast. We have a boast. Our boast is amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That's our theme. That's our boast. That's our song. 
Our boast is Christ. Our boast is His cross. Be thankful for the Father and His sacrifice of His Son. Be thankful for the Father and the love He set upon you in sending His Son to die for you. Be thankful the Father sent His Son to be crucified for you. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you recall they looked to the serpent on the staff, and the plague was stopped. The judgment of God was stopped. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He must be lifted up. That event was a precursor of Christ. And Christ is no serpent, but He took upon our sin. Verse 15, That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is salvation by faith alone. Whoever believes in Him. That is the message of Scripture beginning to end. The just shall live by faith. From faith to faith, the just shall live by faith. Faith alone. Galatians 5, 4, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. It doesn't matter what law, by the way. The law in Galatians 5, 4 is the actual law. The law of God, the law of Moses. If you attempt to be justified by the law, you are estranged from Christ, cut off from Christ. You have fallen from grace. You're not saved. If you create your own law over here, outside of the Word of God, whether it's Mormon law or Jehovah's Witness law or Muslim law or Catholic law or Eastern Orthodox law, if you create your own system of works righteousness, a law, you're estranged from Christ. You've nullified grace. It's grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. No law will do. No mixture will do. The Judaizers of Galatians 5, 4, those who are estranged from Christ, cut off from Christ, they didn't reject faith in Jesus. They had faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus plus dietary restrictions. Faith in Jesus plus circumcision. Faith in Jesus plus anything. Anything damns the soul. It's faith in Christ alone. Now, of course, faith without works is dead. If you are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, the evidence thereof, you will desire to serve Him. You will desire to walk with Him. You'll desire to know Him and worship Him. Because you're saved, not to be saved. Any mixture of faith and works nullifies grace, nullifies faith. It's not faith at all unless all the faith is in Christ alone. Again, verse 15, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 15 doesn't get enough love. Everyone memorizes verse 16. Verse 15. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Glory! Verse 16. For God so loved the world. The world. Some from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, His own precious Son. Now Jesus is not begotten in the eternal sense. He's not begotten in that He has no beginning and no end. 
He is everlasting to everlasting. He is the eternal Son of God. He is begotten in that He took upon Himself the additional nature of mankind and was born of the Virgin Mary without sin, coming to the likeness of men to suffer in our place upon the cross. Don't let cults swoop in on John 3.16 and twist it. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, whoever, red, yellow, black, white, whoever, we're all sinners in God's holy sight, whoever, what deep dark hole we're in doesn't matter, what rock we crawl out from under by the amazing grace of God doesn't matter, whoever, there's no sin so great that the great Savior can't save us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, should not abide under God's wrath in hell forever, should not perish as an object of God's enmity, His just judgment forever, should not perish, but of everlasting life. Verse 15 says eternal life. Verse 16, everlasting life. Life forever as a child of God. We who are under the curse of death, we who are born dead in sin and trespass, are born again. And we have everlasting life through Jesus Christ who took death on our behalf. You recall Romans 3.23, the wage of sin, or excuse me, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23, the wage, what we've earned, the wage of sin is death. Christ took that death, eternal death, on our behalf so that we might live forever. Live forever Thus, 1 Corinthians 15 can say, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your sting? As we see everyone with their masks on, everyone social distancing, everyone hiding in their homes, the evidence that they're under the curse of death. And they fear it. They're terrified. Some of them are truly terrified. And they should be to some extent if they're outside of Christ. They breathe their last breath. The next breath will be sulfur. The next breath will be hellfire. The last heartbeat will not be the end of their existence. It will be the beginning of their eternal existence under God's judgment. And so they should have some fear there. But we who are in Christ, death has lost its sting. Now, we shouldn't be foolish with our lives, but we have hope. We have victory. Christ has conquered sin and Satan and death on our behalf. Our future is a future of life. As you get older, you're not getting closer to death. You're actually getting closer to life. You're getting closer to putting off the body of death and entering into the fullness of life like you've never known. All we have ever known is a sin-cursed, dying world. The moment you die in Christ... You're more alive than you've ever been. And you will only live forevermore. And even that body will be resurrected. And you'll have a body fit for heaven. A body that will never, ever, ever die. And all the aches and pains will be gone too. Bonus. And so God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, faith alone, should not perish but have everlasting life. We are the people who won't perish. We are the people who have everlasting life. Should we not be thankful? Should we not be joyful? And should we cower? We should not cower. 
but stand strong, stand with joy. The world needs to see us with hope. The world needs to see us walking in victory. The world needs to hear faith. They don't need to see us every bit as sorrowful and depressed and caught up in doom and gloom as they are. They need to see the faith. They need to see the victory over sin and death that Christ has purchased for us at so great a price. Be thankful the Father has sent His Son to be crucified for you. Fourth, got to move on. Fourth, be thankful you're not condemned. Be thankful you're not condemned. Verses 17 and 18, John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Be thankful you're not condemned. You should live conscious of the reality that you're not condemned. And that should make you thankful and joyful and happy. That should give you a peace that surpasses understanding you're not condemned. You once were. Every other man and woman outside of Christ is. But you're not condemned. You've been given a reprieve. You've been given a pardon you don't deserve. You're not condemned. It's not that you're not condemned because you're not guilty. You're guilty. I am guilty. But we're not condemned. Because Christ took our guilt and paid the debt in our place. That's the amazing love of God. That's the amazing love of the Lord Jesus for you personally. Remember, personally. He knew you and every sin that He bore for you on that cross with perfect knowledge. It is a specific atonement for a specific people. He knew you and died for you with perfect knowledge and love. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The first incarnation of Christ was not an incarnation of condemnation. It was a rescue mission. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is amazing news. He didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That some from every tribe, tongue, and nation might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. What glory. What glory. Should we not proclaim that? Should we not be crying that out from the rooftops? He who believes in Him is not condemned. This is amazing good news. Because outside of Him, we're already condemned. But those who believe upon Christ, not some exacting, strict, complicated set of legalistic rules, boxes to check. Not Roman Catholicism shoots and ladders game where you go up and down, sacrament by sacrament, sin by sin, indulgence by indulgence, and oh, purgatory for you. Caught that slide at the end. No praise to God. It's all of grace through the gift of faith. And he who believes in him is not condemned. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero zip, nada. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Be thankful you're not condemned. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They're condemned already. That's terrifying. Most of the world thinks that one day they will die, and if there's a God, there will be scales. And on one side of the scale will be their good deeds, on the other side of the scale will be their bad deeds. As long as their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, they'll be okay. I once was a professing atheist, but I always had in the back of my mind that scenario. Friends, that's a lie. Our sins have already found us out. We're already condemned. And the scale is one-sided. There is nothing on the good side. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Even the good things look good and fine to our fellow man. Even those things are tainted with sin. In the very least, they're tainted with pride. I feel really good about that good thing I did. I was a good man. I was a good employee. I was a good father, husband, mother, sister, brother, son, whatever. I helped the little old lady across the street. Look at me. Pride. If it doesn't proceed from faith, if it's not for the glory of God, it's sin. That's what the Word of God says. And so we must come to the cross empty handed, knowing that outside of Christ and His righteousness, we are utterly condemned. Even our good deeds are tainted with sin. The scale is utterly empty on the good side, and it's far fuller than we imagine on the evil side. Every vain thought, every idle word. And so he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son, of God. Be thankful you're not condemned. You've come out from under condemnation. You were already condemned. And the Lord brought you out from under condemnation into Christ Jesus and His perfect righteousness. Point five, be thankful you're in the light of Christ. Be thankful you're in the light of Christ. John 3, 19-21. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Be thankful you're in the light of Christ. I touched on this earlier. As we live in this dark world and it seems to be getting darker, we have a tendency to become unthankful. Boy, it's so dark out. It's just so dark. And even in the natural world, the days are shorter. We live in Oregon. The cloud covers come for the next six months. It's just dark in every which way one can imagine. And we tend to become unthankful in that. Let that compel you to thankfulness that You see the darkness for what it is. You don't revel in it. You're not a child of darkness. You're not a participant in darkness. You don't run out into the darkness celebrating. But rather you have eyes to see, eyes that have been filled with the light of Christ, to see the darkness for what it is and to have a desire to flee from it. And you know you're headed toward light. You know you're headed toward a new heaven, new earth in which not only is there only righteousness. There's no need of a sun. For Christ is the light. 
The light of the world will radiate the new world. Be thankful you're in the light of Christ. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. If you don't love darkness rather than the light, it is evidence of the grace of God. If the darkness disturbs you, let that compel you to praise God's name. Because without God's grace, the darkness would not disturb you. You would delight in it. Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Now, we all still do evil deeds and think evil thoughts at times because we have yet to be holy and utterly sanctified. We have yet to be glorified. But the Word of God is clear. Once you're born again, the old is past, all things made new, you become a practicer of righteousness. You once were a practicer of lawlessness, a practicer of evil, a practicer of darkness. Now you're a practicer of righteousness. You won't perfect righteousness until you put off this body of death fully. Now you should be working, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, being washed with the water of the word, renewed in mind and heart, dying to self, full of the spirit. And yet we are practicers of righteousness who were once practicers of lawlessness. Those who practice evil, they hate the light. If you're practicing righteousness, it's evidence of God's grace. It's evidence of that regenerating power. It's evidence you've been born again. If you hate the darkness and love the light, it's evidence that God has set His love upon you. It's not evidence that you are a basically good person, that you're wiser innately, more spiritual innately, more holy innately, but it's the work of God, the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit within you. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deed should be exposed. But he who does the truth, does the truth, does the truth. Do you believe the truth? Amen. Do you do the truth? Now, ultimately, if we truly believe it, it's by the grace of God. And if we truly do it, it's by the grace of God. Because God is working within us both to will and do for his good pleasure. He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. If that describes you, be thankful that you're in the light of Christ. For it's the power of God that has brought you to the light of Christ. It's the power of God that holds you fast in the light of Christ. It's the power of God that rescues you from the darkness should you fall into it. Like that theological darkness that Peter fell into with the Judaizers. Peter was regenerated. Peter had been illuminated. Peter was a genuine Christian and an apostle. And yet, for a season, he fell to the heresy of the Judaizers, adding works to faith. But he evidenced that he truly was born again, truly regenerated, when Paul came and rebuked him to his face. That's an extreme example. There's another extreme example. David. David had the Spirit of God. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He said in his prayer of repentance to God after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. 
He came to repentance. Had he continued in that sin, he would have evidenced he never was truly a man after God's own heart. But the prophet of God came with that bony finger in his chest. You are the man. And David repented. Two horrific examples. May we not follow the example in falling so radically into moral sin or falling so radically into theological heresy, but they show us that it's all of grace, that we are dependent upon God, whether we be apostle or the king of Israel, under Christ, of course, but David is the king of Israel, the king that all Jews love and honor. And both fell horrifically into sin. They fell into darkness. But because they were born again, because they were regenerated, because they did have the Spirit, they repented and were rescued out of that darkness. So be thankful you're in the light of Christ and don't be presumptuous in it. Stay in the light, brother. Stay in the light, sister. Don't find darkness. Don't make room for darkness in your life. Don't make room for unaccountable time, unaccountable relationships, unaccountable conversations. Stay in the light. Don't make room for heretics and heresy. Stay in the light. Beware of false teachers. Stay in the light. Beware of creeps who come creeping, as Jude warns us. Stay in the light. Be thankful you're in the light of Christ. Verses 19 through 21. Verses 22 through 36. John 22 through 36. Be thankful for the example and testimony of John the Baptist. Now, I I can't unpack all this as fully as I'd like, and I haven't been able to unpack all of John 3 as fully as I'd like. I want to get a whole snapshot from the entire chapter of these foundations of Christian thanksgiving. But let's look at this section, John 3, 22 through 36, under the title of Be Thankful for the Example and Testimony of John the Baptist. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, And there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing in Aenon near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease." He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And so we have this beautiful account of John and his disciples' interaction, and then this mini-sermon from John. But what we see in this snapshot, other than 
John being the precursor of Christ, the herald of Christ, preparing Israel for Christ with this beautiful ministry in the wilderness, this ministry of repentance and a baptism of repentance and all of Israel seemingly running to John and yet they reject the heart of John's message, Jesus. We see the disciples misunderstanding John's ministry, John's disciples misunderstanding John's ministry. They're jealous of Jesus. Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan. Remember the one you said, behold, the Lamb of God. Remember that one? Everyone's going to him. What's John's response? Yes, he's the bridegroom. (laughs) I'm just a guest. He's not even the bride, by the way. You're the bride. John is the last Old Testament prophet. You're the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. John's a guest. And he says the guest rejoices in the bridegroom and the bride. He doesn't take glory from the bride and the bridegroom. No, he rejoices in that relationship. He rejoices in that ministry that the bridegroom came to lay his life down, came to shed his blood to wash his bride with his own blood, to purchase his bride with his own blood. And John is a celebrant of that. And John's heart is continually this. He must increase. I must decrease. That must be our heart. That's the very command of Christ boiled down into one brief statement. Jesus who said, die to self, take up the cross, follow me. He must increase. I must decrease. And let me tell you, saints, that is, that is a heart that will bring you happiness. We still, this side of glory, often find our heart wanting to increase and we'll, we'll wedge Christ in there a little, in a little spot. We'll make a little room for him here and there, at least on Sunday. But our heart should be to die to self and to live for Christ. Our heart should be Paul's summation of Jesus' command to die to self and take up the cross. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain, or as John says, he must increase, I must decrease. Be thankful for the example and testimony of John the Baptist who finished, oh, so well as a preacher of righteousness, losing his head as a preacher of righteousness. Seventh, be thankful you have everlasting life. John 3 36a, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Be thankful you have everlasting life. Hold fast to that reality. Whatever life throws at you, whatever God's providence allows to come into your life, be thankful you have everlasting life. You are not going to get your best life now. You are going to get suffering now. That is my promise to you. I'm not a health and wealth preacher. I just disqualified myself. You're not going to get your best life now. You're going to get suffering now. But choose this day what you will suffer for. Will you suffer for Christ and righteousness? Or will you suffer for unfaithfulness and sin? Will you suffer for Christ's glory? Will you suffer for Christ's gospel? Will you suffer for Christ's mission to seek and to save the lost? Will you suffer for righteousness? Or will you suffer 
trying to get your best life now in rebellion and sin. God is a faithful father. He will chasten you as a rebellious child. And God has a plan for his glory from your life. Now, I very much hope your life does not look like Job's life. I very much hope. But Job glorified God. And Job is now glorified. And Job at this point has no regrets. No regrets. He wouldn't change anything. Nothing. Nothing. And so hold fast to the ultimate reality. Be thankful you have everlasting life as a child of God under the love of God forever. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Anchor your heart, mind, and soul there. Hold fast to that reality through all the wind and the waves and you'll not be tossed to and fro. Final and eighth point. Be thankful the wrath of God does not abide on you. John 3, 36b. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. That's the positive. That's the glory. That's where you anchor yourself. But then every now and again, look over to the other side of the verse. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God does not abide on you. The love of God abides on you. The mercy of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God. Your adoption is sealed with the blood of Christ, sealed with the indwelling Spirit of God. Be thankful the wrath of God doesn't abide on you. These are fundamental foundations of Christian thanksgiving. Hold fast to these John 3 realities and you will be thankful. You will be victorious. You will have joy and you will have peace that surpasses understanding. You will evidence to the world around you the victory that Christ has purchased for you. You will evidence to the world around you the power of the Spirit of God within you. You will magnify Christ and His victory over sin and Satan and death as you hold fast to these foundations of Christian thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we have just pulled the curtain back on heaven upon You, our great God, upon Your Son, our great Savior, and Your Spirit, our great Regenerator, Illuminator, and indwelling power. May we not forget what we have seen. May we not forget what we have heard. May our faith be full and our joy be full in You, our God. Through the power of Your Spirit, through the sacrifice of Christ, through the renewing of the mind by the Holy Scriptures. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.